Welcome to That's So dot 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 with me, Jess Bryan. That's So is a series here at That's So Chronic where we get to chat about something in a bit more of a conversational sense. We can chat about things from books, films, articles, everything and anything. And today I'm sitting down to chat about the book titled Love Sick by Corey Martin. And actually, at the end of this episode, I'm also joined by Corey Martin herself to chat about her book, and I get to ask her a few questions. It definitely did. It gave me a purpose of like, okay, you're not just living with this crappy thing. Like, here's something you can do with it. So, Lovesick by Corey Martin. First of all, Corey is an exceptional woman. She is an author and a ghost writer. When she wrote this book, she was based in LA. And she's a graduate of the University of Southern California. She has a BA in English creative writing. And she also studied at Cambridge University in England. She has got credits writing for the OC. Just a little television program you might have heard of (laughs) and she also wrote a lot of the novelizations of the OC I don't know if you remember this but back in the 90s that was such a big thing is it a big thing now I don't know if it is but remember when you would be watching a TV show and then somebody would write the books about it generally for young adults I remember that happened with a lot of the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen TV shows that I was watching and how cool that Corey did that for the OC and I got I got to chat with her anyway fangirl aside (laughs) she has written Lovesick the memoir that we're going to chat about today and also she's a yoga instructor as well so she has written a book Yoga for Beginners and there's a new book on the way which she also chats about in the interview and actually In the book, in Lovesick, we also learn that Corey was working with a quite a famous writing duo and was helping write blockbuster films and was even on the set and like Drew Barrymore was there or something. Anyway, it's very, she's very important (laughs) and I'm so excited that I get to chat about Lovesick today. So Lovesick is a memoir all about dating life in Hollywood and being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or MS, which I also have a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. I literally just jumped on Google and was like, movies that have MS in them. And I was surprised, actually, that there weren't that many because I feel like every person and their dog knows somebody that has MS. So I'm shocked that it's not in more movies but then I was like I found a documentary and I was going to watch that but I was thinking at the moment my brain like I'm not in the best place and so watching something about what I have wasn't probably going to be the best idea and I love reading so I then went back to Google and typed in books that have MS in them and a list on Goodreads came up and they always tell you not to judge a book by its cover but that's what I did I judged a book by its cover lovesick had a great cover and I was like that looks like the type of book that I would pick up to read normally. And I thought it was going to be a non-fiction book, actually. 
And then when I read the blurb, I learned that, yeah, it was a memoir. It's a true story all about a person who's 28 years old being diagnosed with MS and suddenly realizing that they don't want to die alone and what if nobody ever loves them again. So she goes on this dating mission to try and find the love of her life before shit hits the fan and in her eyes shit hitting the fan was kind of like maybe not being able to walk again. And in the book, Corey even writes that some days she was too afraid and she didn't want to go to sleep because she was so worried that she was going to wake up in the morning not being able to walk. The book begins the opening chapter and Corey is getting an MRI. And there was one bit in that moment that I was thinking it really resonated with me when she was writing about trying to scan the radiologists or the um, technicians faces for any signs of clues and I think that that's what gets me the most when you're getting an MRI and you're in the machine and you've got the helmet on and sometimes you've got a mirror so you can actually see outside of the machine and nine times out of ten you're looking at the people that are behind the window kind of like a recording studio but (laughs) really not as cool as a recording studio and you're watching them and I'm thinking you know they can see my brain right now and I'm trying to get the clues from their faces but maybe they get trained to not give anything away because no one ever does but when she was writing about that I was like yeah that's a thing that never really goes away for me I remember the first MRI and I think I've had like 14 MRI since then and it's still the same every single time. I know that a lot of you won't have had the opportunity to read this book before listening to this podcast so I won't give too many spoilers away. When this all sort of kicked off for Corey was Tuesday October the 16th 2007. She's on the phone to her parents and I want to read you out a bit of what she wrote because yeah it really got me in the feels. So She's on the phone to her dad. We're going to get through this, my dad replies in the background. I can hear my mum asking if it's me again. I've already called them once this morning, just an hour ago. I was upset then, but now, now I'm far worse. I'm supposed to be working, researching the next big Hollywood movie for my A-list writer bosses, or penning my own blockbuster. Instead, all I can think about is, how will I do this alone? When I woke up this morning, I was just a girl living out her dreams in Los Angeles. I was Miss Corey, or Ms. Corey Elizabeth Martin. I say Ms. because I think that the M and the S are prettier and more sophisticated at this age than Miss. (laughs) I was happy and content and working on my career as a writer. I had figured out how to work from home and still be able to afford a SoCal lifestyle. I was no longer the insecure young 20-something I had been just a few years ago. I was a confident, strong woman. I want my mummy, I whimper, as I continue to clutch at the carpet with my newly manicured nails. She also writes this sentence that I thought was so poetic and so beautiful. I am only one note in the arrangement of the world's symphony, but I feel like a fallen bass drum, loud and heavy. So she's 25 when all of this is starting for her. And there's one moment where she's driving and she gets a numb hand, I think it is. And it made me go back to that time, because I was 21 when I was diagnosed, and it made me go back to that time of being in the waiting room. And if you've listened to the interview, 
on my story, I mentioned in that interview that the worst thing that I could think of in that moment was what if I would have to wear an eye patch for the rest of my life? And I think when you're young, you're not thinking that a disease is something that's going to come into your life. You're thinking of the immediate stress. And for Corey in that moment, the immediate stress that she was thinking about was that they're going to have to amputate my finger and that I'm going to be the person with no finger. And it gets really dramatic and I can so relate because my brain does the same thing and she's like, I'm going to be the person that doesn't have a finger and who's going to love me because I won't have a finger when really not having a finger would actually be maybe better than having a chronic illness like MS. But in the moment when you're young, yeah, diseases aren't or chronic illnesses or diagnoses aren't something that's in your reality and that you consider Corey speaks a lot that the only reference she had of MS was people being in wheelchairs. And that's when the story kind of evolves and she starts thinking, who's going to want me in sickness and in health if sickness is inevitable? And she goes on this quest to start dating. She's not sure whether to tell people that she has MS, or or she doesn't actually have MS at this point. She hasn't been given a clear diagnosis, but it is sort of in her reality now. And so she doesn't know whether she wants to tell these people that she's dating. And she's got all these things that she wants to do. And so she goes out and she lives her life and she lives her life hard, which I can relate to because I definitely did that as well. There are some amazing stories and I am, I am, uh, Sorry, my hand is like seizing up. I'm getting a little bit distracted. I do love, love books. That is what I would choose to read normally. So this style of writing and what she was explaining and what she was talking about, I really enjoyed because that is definitely my cup of tea. And she goes on all of these dates and she shares a bit about all of them. And eventually she gets to the point where her specialist, her MS specialist, is saying that we need to do a lumbar puncture. I know, a lumbar puncture. They are the worst. If you haven't had a lumbar puncture, I definitely recommend you just read this book because then it will explain it and then you will be able to empathize with all of your friends that have had lumbar punctures. I have had three and on my second lumbar puncture, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. On my second lumbar puncture, I waited a few days and then I caught a plane. I flew down to my parents. That, I I don't, I just, yeah, no, don't do that. I don't recommend that. The headache is like something I have never, ever, 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 ever experienced in my whole entire life. And I got that headache on the plane. The only thing that relieves the headache is lying down, which on a plane is very difficult. I thought I was going to die. I honestly thought that my brain was going to explode out of my skull on that flight and that everything was ending. I, oh, it was just every, everything sucked in that moment. So remember that. And then remember that I had another one after that, which was fine. They're bad. The headache sucks, but it's okay. It's livable. And then I get to the point where I'm reading Lovesick. She's getting a lumbar puncture and I'm on a plane. I am on a plane reading that. Oh, it brought everything back. I actually got the headache via proxy, if that's what it's called. I just, oh, I just felt so sick. And I just like, 
had to take some deep breaths. I had to take off my jacket. I had to take off my, like, I was just, it, I was getting hot. It was just, oh my God. So I don't recommend reading about lumbar punctures when you're on a plane. It is, it's a lot to process. But the writing, Corey's writing is so beautiful that it's not graphic. It's not gruesome. You're not reading it like shivering but she does write it in a way where it really puts you into how she's feeling and to what's going on for her and and the emotions and oh but yeah lumbar punctures send me a message if you've also had a lumbar puncture because I would love to connect with some people to uh to bond over that horrific experience (laughs) and then Corey goes on a date with a writer from England the English boyfriend, as he shall now be known as. Everything is going great. Everything is going fine. And then Corey dumps him. And that's when his ego or something just is all over the place. And he responds in what I think is everybody that has a chronic illness or a disastrous diagnosis, it is their worst nightmare that somebody is going to say this to them. If you want to save it for when you read the book, skip through about 30 seconds here's a here's a text message that the English boyfriend has sent to Corey despite your MS when everyone oh yes I told them I wanted some advice told me I was fucking insane to be with you I would have married you everyone tells me I've dodged the bullet and that I have the opportunity to find a healthy loving partner and mother for my kids who might actually stay alive to see them grow remember when you're fucking some guy and you tell him about the MS you can kiss goodbye to ever seeing him again makes me so angry makes me so angry my heart just broke and shattered into 5,000 pieces for Corey when I read that. Because that is a genuine fear. I think I'm not alone in saying that that's a genuine fear for like literally freaking everybody. That because of this diagnosis, somebody like you're broken. You're a broken human being and nobody's ever going to love you and you can never, you know, have a happy life. And for somebody to say that in a text message makes my blood boil. Completely fucked. (laughs) There's also a moment at chapter 24 titled Shit Happens. First line, today I shit my pants. A beautiful example of the fact that Corey and I are definitely on the same page comedy level wise. I just absolutely love that. So if you shit your pants today... Or have ever shat your pants. Just know that you're not alone. We are all in this together. (laughs) Towards the end of the book, in part three, there's a moment that I would also really love to share with you. It's on page 179. And this is what Corey writes. When people hear you've been diagnosed with a life-altering disease, they want you to have this big aha moment. This moment where you decide to do something grand with your life now that it's been altered. Maybe you buy a ticket around the world or vow to take an oath of silence for six months or quit your job as a salesman and become a stuntman. But the truth is, this rarely happens and it is definitely not what happened with me. MS never gave me the desire to go out and change my life completely. 
It just gave me the desire to keep moving forward, however difficult that may be. I really, really, really enjoyed reading this book. I loved so many aspects of it and I felt comforted reading the book and it was written really well for my brain. I understood all the words, it flowed. I think it would also be a great book for somebody who doesn't have MS and to give a little bit of an insight into what it's like when something like MS enters your life. But I'm not going to lie, it was a little bit uncomfortable at times because I must have a block. I must have something going on for me where reading about something that I have is really freaking hard. I spend so many hours of the day researching things for people that I'm interviewing on That's So Chronic. And I've learned about so many diseases. I've learned about so many different types of cancer. I've learned about so many chronic illnesses or disabilities. But reading about something that is my in my reality is actually really hard for me. And so I'm proud of myself for reading the book and for talking about it today. And I think it's time we hear from the author, Corey Martin herself. Starting all the way at the end of the book, in the acknowledgements, you wrote that the inspiration for the book came in a waiting room at your doctor's or the neurologist when MS entered your life. Can you remember that moment? Why write a book about all of this? Yeah, I can definitely remember that moment. I was actually thinking of it today when I was like getting ready for this podcast. I was like, wow, you know, I haven't even read my book in a couple of years. I forget what's in there. What is she going to ask? Yeah. But I was thinking about like, I remember my parents had flown out from Chicago, came to LA, were staying with me and they're like, okay, we'll take you to this. Like it was the MS specialist. So she's a neurologist, but specializes in MS. And they brought me there and, you know, she kind of went through everything, went through all my tests. And then she was like, I think I'm pretty sure this is what you have, but I'm going to wait and see and we'll run some more tests. And I was like, okay. And I had to go get a blood draw. And so in that waiting room, my parents were like, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Like, this is so much. And, you know, MS had already been brought up. So it wasn't like the first time I had heard that. Um, And so I was a little bit prepared, but not fully prepared. And I was like, you know, I feel like I need to write about this. Like I just started going like, this really sucks. And I'm 28 years old. And, you know, I kind of just started my career as a writer and I was kind of in this place of like what's my next project how am I gonna really like make it in this world and then I get this diagnosis I'm like oh geez like you know is that gonna affect my career and I kind of I don't remember what I was joking about I think I was joking about like what if I like become incontinent like how am I gonna date with that like all these (laughs) things started running through my head and I don't know why it must have been like my friends and I were out dating. And so it was so clear in my head that like, this was the time to be dating for some reason. Like, this is what I had to do. Even though I was focused on my career, it was like, this is the time, like you're young, you're, you know, you have everything ahead of you. And so that's all I could think about. And I was like, I remember before that appointment, I was kind of on the internet looking for young people who were living with disease. 
And there weren't a lot back then. This was 2008. There wasn't really a lot of social media. And so I was like so lost. And it was all these older people talking about their disease. And it was so miserable. And I was like, what am I going to do? And, and I felt like, because when I get bad news or I find something out, I want to read about it. And yeah. like, you know, I always want to go to books. And so that really became my thing was like, well, maybe I can be that voice because that voice doesn't exist. And I'm already a writer. Maybe this is my thing and this is what I should do mm. with this. And it helped me get through it in some ways, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think deciding to write a book about this gave the diagnosis and the kind of like shitty situation that was happening a bit more of a purpose? Because I know for me, when I was diagnosed, it's like, why me? Why am I going through this? And I guess writing a book about it, I'm wondering if that helped those feelings a little bit. Yes, it definitely did. It gave me a purpose of like, okay, you're not just living with this crappy thing. Like, here's something you can do with it. Also, there was so much uncertainty back then because I had symptoms but they weren't affecting my every day-to-day -day life. You know, yeah. they would kind of come and go. And so it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't so devastated physically at that point. So I was like, okay, well, what does this mean for my life? And you're right, like writing about it gave me a purpose. And I took a class at UCLA, like one of the big colleges in LA, they have like an extension for adults like later on in life. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to take this writing class and at least it'll make me have deadlines and I'll just write. And I'll yeah. battle, you know, whatever their assignment is, I'll kind of follow it. But I'm writing this book and I'm just going to do what I want to do and like tell these stories. That's amazing. How long from when you got the idea to finishing the book? How long does that process take? <laughs> that took a really long time. Um, <laughs> that was probably six years, seven years. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if all of the stories that you were then telling, did those happen over six years or was that in a more condensed space? A lot of them happened over probably, I would say, like three years. Okay, yeah. And some of them I would write as they were happening or, you know, I wrote probably the first hundred pages of the book within six months. Wow. And I was like, this is great. And then... I started shopping it around to agents and showed it to like writer friends and like professional writers that were colleagues. And they were like, this is great. And what I came to realize was that writing it in the immediacy gave it sort of that feeling of like, oh gosh, this is what you're going through. And this is what it feels like to be diagnosed and to like, you know, go through all those, that six months of diagnosis was really difficult. Mm. And then I realized that in order to have a real book that ha that feels complete, like you kind of need to live life yeah. and then be able to look back upon it mm -hmm. in order to give it some sort of gravity or weight. I have to ask this because I've never written a book before. Is everything in Love Sick truthful or is it dramatized a little bit to help make the story flow? It's all truthful. I think the stuff that might be dramatized is what's in my head. Yeah. It's sort of those thoughts like, because I remember the feelings, but it's not like I always yeah. sort of talk to myself that way. But like, as you're writing it, you're like, how do you get across that feeling of what it feels like inside your own head yeah. to a reader? And so that probably is exaggerated. And I'm sure some of the men in the book would read this and go, I didn't do that to her. And that is not what happened. But that was my truth. And that's how I felt in the moment. Yeah. So, so the English boyfriend... Oh, I wanted to jump into the book and I don't condone violence, but I just wanted to get in there and give him a stern telling off. 
Oh my God. Did he actually say those things in the message to you? Yes, he did. And I, when I like, you know, we've moved several times and I found old journals and the journal I got, like right when I got diagnosed, I was just keeping notes and I wrote it in there because this was like an old phone too. So like the text messages weren't like your iPhone is now where it kind of shared saves it all. So I was like, I'm going to write this down because I know First of all, I feel like if I write it down, then I can get it out of me and it'll, I'll feel better about it if I don't have to stare at this phone and then repeat those words in my head. So yeah, those, that was all true. That was not like me remembering the conversation. That was me. Like I took the actual messages and condensed them. Like they were longer than what's in the book. I just feel like you just kind of you don't wish any misfortune upon him or anything but you kind of just hope that maybe someone in his life like he's been he's had someone close to him that's maybe gone through a diagnosis because everyone's got something right so yeah it's like I hope he's just learned and can look back at that moment and be like man I was such a dick that was not okay (laughs) I hope so too I really hope so I, th- I think I get it now. Like, I think he was just hurt that like me ending things was just yeah. too much for him or whatever. You know, it probably came out of nowhere, but come on, like yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be that mean. And <laughs> I really think it's don't. like everyone's worst nightmare getting those sort of messages after being diagnosed as well. Yes, for sure. Oh. Another thing that really stood out to me in Lovesick was how amazing your mum and dad are. I just, I love good parents and they just sound like they're so lovely and so supportive. Yeah, they really are. Like I, you know, to me, that was just normal. Like what my parents are, are my parents. And, you know, until friends started reading it and sort of pointing out like, wow, you really have such a support system. And I was like, you don't? Like it it saddened me to like learn that that wasn't true for everyone. And so, yes, I am very, very fortunate. And my sister has a baby now and like watching them be grandparents is the cutest thing ever because they're so attentive and so into him and it's like amazing. When I was doing a little bit more research into you and what happened after you published the book, I realized that actually not very many people knew about your MS diagnosis until you published the book in 2016. How was that? Talk us through how you were feeling (laughs) Putting it out there in the world. Yeah, maybe that was not the best way to go about it. Like, <laughs> hi. <laughs> but I guess at that point, it was just like, well, it is what it is. But my first sort of way into sort of telling people, I mean, yes, my family and close friends knew. But even like friends of friends didn't know. Or yeah. like friends, boyfriends or husbands, like mm-hmm. they probably knew because their friend, because they told them, but I never told them. So I didn't know if they knew or not, you know? And I remember I wrote an article for this online site that was there back in the day. It was called Exo Jane. And it was sort of this like girls website. And it was started by this woman, Jane Pratt. And it was like, people would tell these stories. And there was a chapter in the book that was about posing for Playboy. Yeah. It was called my wheelchair list. Okay. And like, and it was all the things I wanted to do with my body before it failed me. And one of them was like, be a stripper. And one was like, pose on the cover, nude of Playboy. Like these were just fantasies. I don't think anything would have ever happened. Yeah. But back then, Playboy said they were going to get rid of nudes. 
on the cover and I was like oh no there goes my yeah. shot at this thing that I was gonna do to like prove I'm okay yeah. and so I took that chapter and I wrote an article and it, it and they accepted it and published it and it got and that was like the first time I announced like I had MS was like hey I also want to post naked yeah. on Playboy <laughs> cover so like I posted it on Facebook to like everyone you know everyone I had ever known yeah. and like People were like, first of all, this is great. Also kind of cool that you want to do this. Also, what the hell? You have MS? Like, what? Yeah. Like, what happened? What? Like, I've known you forever. Why has this not come up? Why isn't this a thing, you know? And, like, when did that fit into your life? <laughs> yeah, because, like, from what I've seen, you've just been perfectly normal and healthy and going about life. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have. But also there was this thing that was hidden and... I, I almost wish I had just told people from the get-go, but I was so scared back then that like people were going to see me differently or, you know, not take me seriously in my career or whatever it was. And I had all these fears around it. And I thought like the only way to talk about it is if I do something big around it. And I don't know why that became in my head, but it was like, that's how I thought. And I realize now, like, had I been more open, I probably would have had a lot more support earlier on in my journey. And so that's the one thing I do regret about not telling people is that like people are actually really supportive besides like an Englishman, but a lot of people will be very nice and, you know, step up and people you didn't expect are there for you. And so, you know, I wish I'd done that at least. Totally understand not telling people because it can be so confronting mm-hmm. as we see with Englishmen. <laughs> yes. And also you can't take it back either. So yeah. once you say it, it's out there, you know, and, and sometimes I forget I wrote the book. I don't know why I forget that or that it's like all over my social media, but I forget it sometimes when people ask, how are you? And I'm like, oh, fine. Great. Today was good. And they'll be like, no, like, really, how are you? And I forget that they're asking, like, how is your health? And they want to know yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. I just, it doesn't even occur to me anymore. It's just like part of the life. What was the reaction when you published the book from the public and from your friends and family? Really great. I mean, you know, everyone was very supportive. And a lot of people were like, this is really, you know, if, as a writer, it was more to me like, did they like the writing? And people really yeah. responded to that. So that made me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, everyone was supportive. There are, which I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I have read reviews on Goodreads and yeah. Amazon and things. And there are some things that I'm like, oh, I didn't need to read that. And it's yeah. it's not even attacking the writing. It's attacking like my life choices. And I'm like, but that's not what the book is. And I'm like, okay, well, you, you know, when you get diagnosed or when something happens to you, then you can live your life the way you want to live. But other than that, I mean, it's been a cool journey. Like I've met so many people across the world. And now I feel like I have this support system that I didn't have before that, like, I can lean on like, hey, I'm going through this, or, you know, I have a doctor's appointment, or I have this symptom, or, you know, there's, there's people I can reach out to now that weren't there before that understand you know like I have my family but until you're the person uh, you know like you know until you actually have to deal with the illness like you really don't fully understand what it's like yeah speaking of the reviews I saw one on Goodreads and the man was just like oh I didn't know what it was about I didn't even read 
the back. I thought it was like a made up story. And I'm like, why are you writing a review about it then if you like didn't even know what the book was? Yeah. Just keep those thoughts to yourself. Right. Or they'll write a review and they'll be like, it was terrible. I couldn't read it. But yet there's details that say they that you can tell they read the whole thing. So I'm like, you read the whole book. It wasn't that bad. No. (laughs) Yeah. So when I was reading the book, I read it on a flight to see my friend perform in a show and I got to the point where we were talking where you were writing about lumbar punctures so on a scale of one to the worst thing in the whole entire world where would you rate lumbar punctures how much do you love them (laughs) that is pretty freaking terrible like I can't even imagine it like actually the thing itself wasn't so bad it was the headache and the spinal leak afterwards yeah the headache is that was like level did you get it did you have lumbar puncture and then end up with a headache like yeah not fun and on the second lumbar puncture I actually flew back down to see my parents about three days afterwards but it that that was that was not a good I do not recommend <laughs> yeah. flying after not a lumbar a good puncture. Idea. And then I don't recommend reading about a lumbar puncture on a plane. After you've already <laughs> just experienced brought everything back. <laughs> yeah, that would be traumatizing. And I feel like I got the headache just yeah, by thinking like, about the headache. So you you wrote it exceptionally well. If anyone is interested in knowing what a lumbar puncture feels like, I think reading your book is a perfect explanation. But I'm glad I, I captured that because that was a very like, I didn't even know that kind of headache was possible. Like, no, neither. been hungover, yeah. had headaches, doesn't compare. No. Like, not the same. I thought it was really interesting as well how the difference between when you're living the reality of having to get a lumbar puncture and perhaps the doctors that are talking about the lumbar puncture and how... The whole situation was that they were saying, you know, oh, your parents don't need to come and help you. Well, you can just drive home. And when I was like reading all of this, I was thinking that person has never had one because I don't think you could just drive no. afterwards. No. Yeah. Like you think, oh, it's just a needle and it's like getting a blood drop. No, it's not. Like it's so much yeah. more painful. Yeah. I, I feel like I keep wanting to create my own medical um like not career, but like some sort of like thing to do with the medical field. Cause I'm like, where are the people that kind of go like, okay, you went to med school and I've lived it. How do we put these two together and like explain it yes. to the other one? Because this doesn't always compute. Yes. I've been thinking loads about that as well. Especially if you're in med school and you're learning about it. And then you think like, it's not a big deal. Like you go try one, you get one and see how you feel. Yeah. Oh, Imagine you're just like fifth year med student becoming a doctor and it's like, okay, team, today we're doing lumbar punctures on each other. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened after the book? The book ends and maybe I won't spoil it for everybody, but there is is a happy ending at the end. Yeah. What then happens next? Because if I'm correct in thinking... The diagnosis of MS, it wasn't as simple as just, yep, this is what you have. They were still waiting to see a few more Mm -hmm. tests and to see what happens in the MRIs. So what happened after the book ended? So I continued to see the doctor and I would get fatigue and some numbness, but like 
nothing too bad over the years, but like I would never have more lesions. So that was always good. And my doctor was like, well, I could have put you on a drug and we would have said, look how good it's doing. Yeah. She's like, but then you would have been on a drug that you may or may not have not needed. So I loved my doctor for that, that she kind of took this more conservative approach, which I thought was good because you know, the first neurologist I saw was like, here's all these drugs. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, hold on. I'm 28 years old. Like maybe we should slow this down. So, you know, in terms of the MS, everything's good. I still see that doctor. Well, I have it now because of quarantine. So I just kind of was like, ah, I don't want to go there. Um, but I usually see her twice a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every year she's like, let's do an MRI. Sometimes I put it off. Sometimes I don't. And then a couple years ago, in 2018 so like three years ago i started getting this bone pain and then fatigue and then i couldn't breathe and like all these things started happening and i saw my regular doctor the gp and she was like well i mean it could be ms it could be something else like let's just see but let me send you to a rheumatologist just in case and that rheumatologist ran some more blood work and he's like i think this might be lupus and i see that you've been followed for ms all this time, he's like, maybe it's been lupus this whole time. So he has this idea that it's been lupus the whole time. My MS doctor thinks possibly it's both. Or she says there's a colleague that has termed this thing lupoid sclerosis, which is sort of a combination of them both, okay. which I didn't know existed. No. So, and, it, and the more I looked into it, the more I was like, okay, all of these things actually really overlap, like a lot of the symptoms do. And and until things get worse, it's hard to tell. Yeah. So I'm sort of being treated for lupus, but still being followed for MS. So it's wow. kind of up in the air. And who knows, you know, it could change in five years. Yeah. Would you still have lesions on the brain if it was lupus? I don't really know much about lupus. Yeah, you could. Oh. So lupus is another autoimmune disease that can attack any part of your body. It's except that it, it doesn't attack like the way MS does on the myelin sheath. Okay. So it won't do that exactly, but it could still affect your brain. So like they still don't know exactly what put those lesions on my brain, right? So until another one shows up with more symptoms, then I don't know. So I'm like, well, I don't want to know. I don't want it to get worse. Yeah, no. Let's just pray. Like, it's like, I got enough to deal with. I'm just happy to be this person in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I didn't know all of this. I didn't think it was possible to get two autoimmune diagnoses. I thought, like, once you get hit once by lightning, like, why is it going to happen again? But apparently it's very common to have several autoimmune Mm. diseases at once. So it seems like I just got lucky. Or or we followed the wrong path from the beginning. I don't know. And luckily my doctors are both like, well, let's just keep watching you for both. And yeah, right now you'll stay on the meds for lupus because that was what was the worst, you know, yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen in the future and maybe I'll go on an MS drug or something else will happen or, you know? Yeah. So, wow. Sort of like up in the air. So it never like goes away is what I've just learned is yeah. that it's a constantly evolving thing with these illnesses. Right. Yeah. Like I think we're all learning. <laughs> In the book, you were taking baclofen for the mm-hmm. pain. Do you still take baclofen? I do, yeah. Ah, I've just been prescribed it. Yeah. So that's why I was like, oh my God, we like the same person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it like really helps me. I mean, I guess it affects everyone differently, right? Like any drug. 
But for me, it would help me sleep. It would take away sort of the like back pain or if I had overdone it and my joints, everything kind of got stiff, like that would help. And then the next day I would feel a little bit better. Yeah, I've never taken it like fully in the day. And I know some people like have injections of it or a port of it, but yeah, I just took the pills and they definitely helped. So what's next for you? What are you working on anything exciting any more advocacy for chronic illnesses or autoimmune diseases coming up? Uh, yeah, so I actually just, well, I finished this uh, probably like eight months ago, a yoga book, and it's called The Yoga Prescription, A Chronic Illness Survival Guide. Amazing. And it's basically a lot of my story. And then because during all this, I got certified to teach yoga, I sort of took the philosophies of yoga and applied them to living with chronic illness. So each chapter, yes, has a pose, but it's like child's pose or honestly, the poses make no difference. I, yeah. Like if you can't do them, you can't do them. Yeah. That is not what yoga is about, which I'm sure you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I saw that you teach yoga yes. as well. <laughs> and so it's more about like, you know, there's the term spedyaya, which is self-study. And that's so important with chronic illness is like understanding what is your what triggers you. What are the things that make it worse? What are the things that make your disease better? And how do you live with that? And so I share more parts of my story. So it's kind of a continuation of my life, yeah. but maybe not as like overtly like, here I am dating and getting yeah. drunk and doing these things. It's more like, okay, this symptom happened. Here's how I dealt with it. And here's how you can maybe deal with it. And hopefully it helps other people. Amazing. And when will that be out for us to buy and read? There's not a specific date yet, but hopefully this fall, like before the end of the year. Exciting. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with me today and sharing your story in Lovesick. I hope that everybody listening goes and gets themselves a copy and reads it so they can love it as much as I do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that was another episode of That's So dot 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 part of That's So Chronic. All in all, I give Love Sick five out of five stars. I really enjoyed reading it and I recommend that you read it as well. I bought it on Amazon for Kindle. I think it was $14.99, but make sure you check your local library as well. And if you do read the book, let me know what you think. And okay. This is a spoiler alert, but there is a happy ending when you read the acknowledgements. She meets a person called Greg. And as soon as I finished the book, I jumped on her Instagram and I was just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And I was like, please tell me it's still Greg. It better still be Greg. And it is still Greg, which makes me so happy. You can also find Corey Martin online. She is at Corey Martin Writes on Facebook and Instagram or coreymartinwrites.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. I'm at That's So Chronic on Instagram. I love hearing from you all and I love seeing when you listen to the podcast, so make sure you tag me in your stories as well. Don't forget to press subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow on Spotify. And if you want to, feel free to leave a cheeky five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. That really helps That's So Chronic get into more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly, hope.